Welcome to Reframing Our Stories, the podcast. This podcast is about provocative conversations with beautiful thinkers about topics that matter and the stories that have helped them reframe their lives. Grab something cozy or put on your walking shoes and let's reframe. There are times when we meet a person and we remember them. But don't make the connection that they are the person who we think is so wise that we follow on social media. Today, I'll be talking to that person for me, Dr. Laura McGuire. Dr. Laura is a sexuality health educator, adjunct professor, consultant, and speaker for the National Center for Equity and Agency. She's also a doula, yoga instructor, survivor and the author of the book recently published called Creating Cultures of Consent. Really, all that she does astounds me. Not to mention, she is also now getting her master's in pastoral counseling. I would like to say that from what I know of her, she gets it. She understands humanity to its core and where we need to do the deep work. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Laura McGuire. Dr. Laura, I am so glad you are here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) So, I mean, in the intro, right, I talked about how you are someone who I followed on social media and I just thought you were really wise. And then we made the connection that we had sat together at at conversations before. And I'm like, that's right. (laughs) Anyway. So I just really respect the work that you do and the way that you show up in the world. And so you have experience with consent not being valued or acknowledged in your life. So what is the first thing you believe our culture needs to change in order to understand and live consent out fully? Yes. I mean, that, that is such a huge question, right? Where, (laughs) like, where do we start with this? Because, because consent culture, the creation of it, dismantling rape culture and addressing all the intersections there with other forms of oppression is so, so complex. But I think the thing that I always come back to, to make it the elephant, you know, we have to eat it one piece at a time, um, is, is the internal work. Right. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when we look at all of these issues and we hear all of these narratives and we read all this research and we think, oh, my goodness, this is completely overwhelming. And then we get analysis paralysis. (laughs) I don't even know where to go next is to turn inward. Right. To work first on ourselves. What are the messages we have to unlearn? Mm-hmm. What are the things we unconsciously do with our students or our children or in our communities that aren't reflecting the culture of consent that we want to create? And and just really sitting with that. That is not a quick process. That takes years. And the more you do it, the more sensitive you become to the areas that you still need to grow in. Right. Like for myself, I am still constantly aware of things. I'm like, ooh, I'm feeling discomfort around this. Why is this hard for me when I know better? Right. And and processing that so that I can say, but I'm going to make a different choice. And I know what the roots of this are coming from. Mm -hmm. I say 
I mean, even with sex education, right? So whenever I talk with parents, we go immediately into, I'm like, I hate to tell you this, but in order for you to also be that person who can show up for your kids, we have to unpack everything we were taught. And we have to go through the process of learning about ourselves more in order for us then to not, to know what to do if we've been triggered, understand that it was a trigger, you know, and being able to help meet them where they're at, we have to unpack ourselves, which kind of then leaves people in this state of worry a little bit, right? And a little bit of that, but I'm exhausted already. You're telling me I need to do some more work. What does that mean fully? So I think one of the questions is how do we help people know that they're worth that work and that it is okay to do and encourage them to go to that space? Mm, yes. Yes. And I think part of that in, you know, in my experience has been often a gap in understanding of how it benefits them. Mm-hmm. Right. It seems like, okay, here's extra work for you. And what you get to say, I did the right thing, mm-hmm. you know, but, <laughs> but there's often a, a feeling of, yeah, that's not, that's not on my priority list then. Um, and I, you know, and I see this actually a lot in the restorative justice work I do and working with people who have been charged with some form of usually minor, but still it's on the spectrum of sexual misconduct. So harassment, um, behaviors that have been deemed as stalking, et cetera, usually on college campuses. And the respondent will say, you know, this feels like it's a, it's a tool for me getting in trouble, but I don't understand how it's going to benefit me to internalize and use long-term, mm. right? And so having them understand their own pain, yeah. their own, the dehumanization of offenses for themselves, right? How they lose their own agency and dignity in that process. Oh, that has to be fascinating work. It is. I mean, yeah. ha- what have you learned just from that, from working with individuals who have been in it, on the side of offense? I think what I've learned more than anything is that if you want to be on the prevention side, you have to be able to do the alternative. You have to be on the yeah. understanding the offender side, mm-hmm. right? If you want mm-hmm. to serve victims holistically you have to understand what those creating that harm are thinking, where they're coming from, what's happened in their life that allow them to justify that behavior and normalize it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the sex therapists who only work with offenders and just like the amount of work and this, and really actually the care that they have for them to be like, you know, there's a story, we can help them change that story. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's your whole thing is right. (laughs) And it's so true, because I think it's easy for us to offer that to those who have been harmed, right? The empathy is there immediately. But for those who have created harm, 
it's really challenging. It takes a lot of work in ourselves to say, I want to also help them reframe their story and understand why they're doing what they're doing. So that, again, we get to that same root of the problem and they really can have that experience of transformation Yeah, and even become some of our greatest prevention leaders. Right. Because when we don't address it, then they're going to continue the process of harming. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So then we know then from all of the, from life that consent has layers, right? We like to think it frustrates me sometimes with the teaching of consent where people just go, it's a yes or a no. And that's it. And I'm like, actually, no, <laughs> there's right. a lot more than the yes and the no. So we know that there's a layers. What is the layer to consent that needs the most attention? Mm. So I often, yeah, I often push back when people say like consents as simple as, and I'm like, in theory, yes. If this was happening in a vacuum where people weren't complex beings, (laughs) yes, it'd be very simple. If we were robots and we could just program ourselves to be like, you know, communicate authentically, listen to each other's thoughts, read nonverbal cues. Awesome. Um, But we're not robots. So it's going to be a little tricky. I think the layer, the layer that I think even for those who are in prevention education need to talk about more are token resistance and token compliance. So I speak a lot to that. Um, And it really came from wanting to see if there was theory and research behind inauthentic communication in our sexual scripting. So can you break those two things yeah. down for those who are like, um, she just said some terms that I don't understand. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> all the science-y words, the social science. <laughs> but, but it's cool to know that there are actual terms for this, right? right? So a lot of times I've seen, in particular, like maybe lawyers or HR people say, yes, if somebody says no, or somebody says yes, we, that's it. End of story. Mm-hmm. And so, particularly with students, you'll sometimes get the one who like pushes back and is like, well, don't people sometimes say no when they mm-hmm. mean yes? Mm-hmm. And they'll shut them down. They're like, absolutely incorrect. That never happens. You know, you're, you're really being offensive here. And I, I say, I, I understand most of the times where they're going with that is you know, not, not valid, but we still have to address again, the root of the Mm -hmm. question in that statement, Mm -hmm. which is as a culture and many cultures have this, we have scripted this kind of dialogue where people do say yes, when they want to say no, yes, no, when they want to say yes, yes, that's (laughs) true. It's not, it's not fake. And, and I want prevention educators and people in these roles to be courageous enough to talk about that mm-hmm. and understand, yeah, it's, it's scary because it's really messy and it can be weaponized and people can take that and spin it in a really negative way. But again, the answer is let's talk about why we do that. Mm-hmm. 
And that, yes, any no has to be 100% taken as a no. But if you feel like your partner has things that they want to say and they're afraid to say, so for example, they might want to say yes to something, but they're afraid of it being framed as them being hypersexual or a slut or, you know, all of these kind of negative things. We see that a lot with people who are socialized as women. For people who are socialized as men, a lot of times they've been programmed to always say yes. Mm. And if your partner, you feel like there's hesitancy, you feel like there's an incongruence with their body language and them agreeing to do something, tap into that, tap into that, you know, message that there's probably more to this story and that they're allowed to say no. And that doesn't mean, you know, if it's in a heterosexual pairing that, you know, they're gay secretly or that they're not a man enough. Right. Mm -hmm. But again, acknowledging those are the messages we receive. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Right. Because some, I mean, libido plays a different role for so many. And I think that it's such a stigma for men who experience low libido and feel like, well, then I'm not manly enough, whatever manly means, you know, and it's not being able to feel attuned to what, to be able to say exactly what their body is wanting, which is a no, but feeling they have to say yes is so, that's so hard. But I also think like within what you just said, I mean, I've been breaking down a lot around just our culture in terms of the fact that businesses teach, well, don't take no for an answer. Mm, And marketing, right? Like always get them to that. Yes. Or, I mean, really businesses sometimes badger you until you break down and you're like, okay, fine. I'll sign your paper. I'll do that. You know what I mean? I'll take that offer, even though you don't want it, but that's like how our entire, you know, American culture has been built. And then the aspect of parenting, when I have actually said the words too, and I don't know if I talked about this on another podcast of saying, um, where I've said, you know, don't say no to me, like to your kids. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you can say no to me. I have, you know, <laughs> like, but it's all those things I thought you were talking about within this lens of communication styles and what we have learned, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I mean, the marketing piece alone, I know there's a few people out there who actually have started to talk about like trauma-informed feminist consent-driven marketing, hmm. which I think is amazing. I did um, not know that existed. Yes. I'm going to have to, I'll, I'll, I'll have it in the show notes, at least I'll have to come up with some of the names because I'm terrible with names, but I know they're out there and I want them to get credit for that. Um, but they are talking about this, right? That if someone's hesitating, if someone's unsure, if someone's saying, I can't do this right now, we can simply say, okay. I know. I mean, come on. Right. And ask, you know, can I follow up with you on this in the future? And, you know, if, if they are not engaged again, why don't we want that enthusiastic guess? I know. Right. I mean, because when you enter into things that you don't want to, you, you end up like forming a grudge and then you have a negative experience. And then like in a, in a business sense, I'm like, well, I don't want to go back and use that business again, or um, I don't enjoy what they're doing, you know? (laughs) So it's just a negative connotation all around. So from your teaching and when students get 
to that layer of understanding that you're talking about? Like, what do you see them walk away with? I think that one of the biggest things they walk away with is a new vision for communication and sexuality. Oh, mm-hmm. So again, in particular, talking about those who have um, caused harm, that's a huge realization, right? Is that, well, very similar to the marketing thing. I've been taught the only way to get someone to have sex with me or the only way to date is to do these things that you're now saying are predatory. <laughs> but yeah. that that's the example I've always had. That's what my, even my, like, I remember one one student in particular always stands out in my mind because his father was telling him this stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And so who do you trust more than your own parent? And they're telling you, yeah, this is how you act with women. This is what is, re- is expected. And so offering this alternative is so um, amazing because then it's this moment of, wow, this could not feel like gross and bad and demeaning to me. Right. Because when I have to trick people, when I have to convince them, when I have to intoxicate them, I know they don't really want to be with me. Yeah. And that feels like crap. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, I mean, I feel the main thing I feel too that we have to talk about is coping skills around rejection. Because when we, you know, don't have that, then that's where we go. I feel like by default to these places of desperation, right? Because we want to feel, we want to feel wanted and we want to feel needed. And then when the no happens, we're like, oh, wait a minute, that like hurts. (laughs) That didn't feel good. And I think one of the issues is that we're not giving those coping skills of, okay, well, how do we accept that no? Mm-hmm. Right, right, and move on from there. Because it is, it is painful. And I think it, again, if we avoid these tough questions and tough issues, we're not doing anyone any service. Mm-hmm. So we have to say, yeah, we have to. You know, I know we've talked about also like the scarcity mentality, right? Mm-hmm. And again, this goes into business relationships. Like, it's all these issues are integrated into really all aspects of the human experience. Um, But a lot of the fear with rejection is this person saying no, and there's no one after them. Right. Right. And so they're saying no, and they were were the last person on a list of people who might be interested in me. So now I'm doomed to die alone. And this is the end of the story. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and yeah, talk through that. Say that pain, that reaction is real for you, but it doesn't mean it's true, right? Our emotions are valid. They're not necessarily reality. And even kind of that mind frame too, you know, there's, and one of the ways to spot like abusive behavior, right? Is if a partner convinces you that no one else would even love you or right. no one else would even care for you. Because the truth of the matter is there's a lot of people in the world. And when we take that risk to open ourselves up, there's actually quite a few people who can find us appealing, right? And so like that is also a sign of being in an abusive relationship or emotional abuse. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point because 
that same feeling of there's no one else out there for me. Yes. Keeps us not only out of trying to find a, a positive relationship, but in toxic ones, because again, they're all, oh, there's only so many people go around. There's so many people that would be attracted to me. And, you know, so I have to take what I can get and, and how much, you know, suffering across the lifespan. This is not just a young people problem. <laughs> oh, I know. I hear you. Yeah. Everyone, every age deals with this. And, and again, yeah, the more we talk about it, the better. Yeah. Well, with that, so you also teach from a trauma informed lens mm-hmm. and you train people to do the same. So what does that mean? We hear the, we hear trauma informed and a lot of people ask that question. Well, what does that even mean? Especially since trauma comes in so many different shapes and sizes. Yes. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I do a lot with trauma-informed care. Um, is some really exciting things like developing programs where people can really get a lot of that core competency information that's actionable in their field. So um, my firm now offers the only certification in the country currently for trauma-informed care for attorneys and legal professionals. Oh, wow. In November, we will be launching the first ever program for insurance professionals who want to be certified as trauma-informed care um, providers. And then hopefully next year, we'll be branching out into doing this for clergy. Basically, people who aren't already in fields where this is common knowledge Mm -hmm. and where a lot of the trainings that they'll get on the one-on-one level don't apply to what they're dealing with day in and day out. So, so that's kind of like that piece. So what does this even mean? Like you're saying, right? It's a cool (laughs) word, but if we're not clear on what we're talking about, it's not very helpful. Um, So I, I break it down into three components. And basically that is that trauma informed care is understanding the depth and breadth of trauma in our world around us. Mm -hmm. It is actively working to not Mm re-traumatize. And then it is, changing our framework of why are people like this to what is happened to them or what is going on in this moment that's connected mm-hmm. to the past. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of that kind of comes together to saying it's not, and I think it's important to also answer what is trauma-informed care not? What, what does it not Yes. Right. And it doesn't mean we create a world without triggers. That's never going to happen because triggered. And that's the thing, right? Because triggers are everywhere and we never know really who's will be triggered by what. Right. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think everything can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. I think that sometimes people take trauma informed and try to make it that right. We're going to create this space where no one's ever upset no one deals with any difficult emotions. No one's reminded of anything painful. And, and that's not even helpful, right? Because what we want to do instead is create an environment that's not re-traumatizing, right? Not creating new trauma or exacerbating past trauma, but instead is building tools for resiliency. Mm-hmm. So we will deal with painful emotions. We will deal with difficult experiences, Um, Some of that will, a lot of that will relate back to past trauma, but then we want to be in an environment where we can work through that, where we can be supported in creating resiliency so that as we go through life, as we navigate additional 
trials and tribulations, we feel like we have this scaffolding for, well, this is how I'm going to deal with this. This is how I'm going to even allow this to be transformational. Mm -hmm. And I love that trauma-informed care is now moving into more of that conversation about um, post-traumatic growth. Yes. I just like heard about that the other day. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That it's, yeah. The fact that the trauma also can reinvent, right? Like who we are and like be able to, I mean, we got to grow from these places, right. To, to be able to learn more of who we are and to see also like the transformation that we can have onto others. Exactly. So like, for instance, if trauma came up in a teaching session of yours, like if someone was triggered, right, in some sort of a environment that you were teaching in or speaking at as a trauma-informed person, then what would that look like for you and how you would address that? Yeah. So I think one of the big things is to set up Um, And again, an environment where there are options, where Mm -hmm. choice is offered and where there are resources available, right? So you don't want to present something that is absolutely required, especially if it's something that's going to be shared, but even things, exercises and assignments and stuff, thinking about, again, in a particular K-12 environment where it's going to be emotionally vulnerable, And then you have to do it or you have to share it. Um, So an example of this early in my career that I I had to rethink and be aware of was, you know, I was a brand new teacher and teaching sex ed. And, you know, one of the common questions I would ask is like, well, where have you gotten information in the past? What are some of the places that you first heard about sex? So we can talk about, well, what's been positive and helpful and what do we need to address maybe as a common myth or misconception? And one student was like, I really don't want to answer that question. And I was like, okay, that's cool. Not a problem. Just skip over that. Um, It was on a questionnaire. And then later on, I spoke to them and they were saying, you know, where I got my first sex education was from being sexually assaulted at four years old. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's that we have to erase that question completely, but we have to offer again, choice, Mm -hmm. options, alternatives, and the space to process things afterwards. Right. Yeah. So all of those things, when you create that kind of an environment, again, it's not that you're going to never have someone have an experience that's difficult or have something that triggers past trauma, but you're giving them an environment that's safe for that as much as possible. And also making sure that you have those connections to the school counselor, to psychologist, um, that you can get them in touch with someone that day, ideally, um, so that, you know, you don't have to wear all of those hats, but you have to make sure that they have those resources available. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that's so key. And that's, I mean, and people get And I'm glad you talked about how it's not, you're not trying to never create that kind of experience because those things always come up because I do think people get so afraid of, of like, well, everything's a trigger. Then what am I going to do? And things like that. And so I always like to say too, like creating a space that's nourishing for people. Like you want to feel nourished. If something happens, then you have tools in which to be cared for Mm -hmm. after. So 
in your studying and teaching of sexuality, what has remained the most insightful aspect for you? Because mm. I feel like we always have kind of that aha moment or that key point that we go back to even for ourselves. So what is that moment or that kind of insight that has been with you? Mm. Now that's such, that's such a hard question because there's like, there's so many things, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, I think er- early on just being interested in this field kind of as a young adult, um, it was very much realizing that sexuality was so much bigger than I had been exposed to growing up. Um, that certain things that had been normalized in my faith community, in my family. And then I was married very young. So in that relationship, the things that were being normalized were really, really dangerous and unhealthy. And I remember like I, so I got my GED when I was 23 and I already had a child and I was already married. And then going into undergrad and studying some of this stuff and seeing, I remember there was one research study in particular, and it was saying that women who experienced emotional aggression or abuse and who didn't feel like they had a voice to speak up for themselves died like 10 years earlier in this one sample. Oh, wow. Um, And again, that's like many years ago. I'm remembering it. Yeah. All the difference. I don't cite that as a source, but, (laughs) but it was something along those lines. It was something really profound. Um, And it was many years earlier that they were dying. And I remember thinking, wow, this marriage is going to kill me. Mm. Right. Not Mm -hmm. one, the physical danger and fear that was there, but two, if that didn't get me being in this kind of an environment where I'm afraid and anxious and, you know, feeling terrible about myself and being hypervigilant all the time was actually causing physical damage to my body. Yeah. Yeah. Because of all that stress. Yes. And things, right. So I think those kinds of things stay with me. And, and the fact that there's also always something else to learn, you know, I, I just finished reading and I now assign it to my students in all of my classes um, in grad for my grad students, um, the invention of women. And it's an incredible book and it really dismantles like everything we think we know about anthropology and gender in other cultures. And um, the author, you know, says that biology is a social construct. Wow. I've never been challenged in that before. I've never had someone say, yeah, your concepts of biology are a Western social construct. They are not universal. It is not just a blatant fact. It is an opinion. It is one way to view the world. And then when you're coming in from the outside, trying to interpret other cultures and say, oh, yes, they have these constructs, you're still basing it off your own. Mm -hmm. Which is, and I'm going to get a little theological here. Yes. Exactly how we read the Bible. Yep. Right. In which, oh my gosh, I feel like we just going to, we were just going to go into like an another hour conversation that we don't have time for, but that is exactly how we view everything. And I love to, when I was reading some scientific, or maybe it's um, a book all about sex and gender where they were talking about 
you know, even scientists, I mean, you cannot help but have bias on anything because, because even when you study a certain thing or look at it, you're looking at it from, like you talked about a cultural lens in which you have grown up with and you have your own biases and those are always at play Mm -hmm. regardless, always at play. And we have to account for that every single time that we hear really anything because mm-hmm. it's, it's a person's lived experience that they are bringing into this sense of research or commentary or whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So what is this book called? And I need to go get it like right after. <laughs> yes. It's called the invention of women. And um, you can see, so there are great lectures on, of it online. The professor is at Stony Brook. Um, again, I will give you, I will give you her name for the notes of the sure. um, so, but, but yeah, no, there's so many, there's so many good books out there like that, that again, even for those of us who think I'm very open-minded, I'm very progressive. I have all this awareness, um, challenge us in all the best ways of saying, there's still a next level of that. There's still yeah. a perspective you haven't thought of or included fully. Um, and, and yeah, and to keep, keep on that track. That's awesome. Um, so speaking of religion, why did you decide to pair sexuality and religion and now study pastoral counseling? Yes. I don't know. No. <laughs> And the more of the story is, <laughs> yeah, don't go back to grad school. No, um, do, do. It's wonderful. It's a great experience. Um, I mean, it is, it's so hard. It's so hard to um, go back and have to, I think, be in that position of like being a student again versus being, you know, a scholar or a teacher or whatever to like really humble yourself to say, this is an area I'm not an expert in. Mm-hmm. And I want to know more and I want to have this skill set. And I think seminary is also unique in that it is incredibly personally intensive. Yes. Your own own experience and unlearning and processing and questioning. Um, You really have to work through your own shit. Uh, (laughs) And... And it's, it's wonderful for that reason, right? Because I think too many people are out there and there are even people in faith spaces who haven't done that work and are promoting messages and things and, ca- and again, unintentionally causing way more harm than good yeah. because they need to take that step. Um, for myself, it really has been this ongoing journey of knowing there was a missing piece to my work as mm-hmm. educator and academic, um, because this has always been my ministry. It is the reason I think God put me on this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just like a cool career, you know, and I know for many of us, that is very true, but To then also be able to blend the faith perspective with all the things we're talking about, consent and sexuality and restorative justice and trauma, um, I think is is crucial for me. And also the missing piece that I see in what's offered to people with questions about sexuality is that pastoral counseling piece. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a lot of information, education, there's therapy, but when you're grappling with the spiritual component and wanting someone to be a spiritual companion with you in that process, you're often out of luck. Yeah. 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 And that's, you know, I have had so many sex therapists just contact me to be like, what do I do? (laughs) You know, because so many people are in sex therapy with religious trauma. And when we don't have the language around religious trauma or the amount that it's so intimately woven into our beings and like how personal, I mean, it's so personal and sex. I mean, our spirituality and our sexuality are two of the most like personal things. Right. And I just feel like they have to be cared for. So intentionally and like being able to come up with the sort of questions that that person needs to help guide them. Right. And to understand, to be able to break down the doctrine that they have been given and different things like that in order for them to come to the core Mm -hmm. of who they are and who the relationship with God really is and what they really want in like a harmonious way with their sexuality. Yeah. So I think that's, you're right on (laughs) in my humble opinion. (laughs) Right on. Um, So what is your hope for future sexual health educators and how they can reach people and change things moving forward? Because I know that you teach human sexuality and you are helping these new batch of sex educators into the world. So what is it? that you're hoping for, for them? And what do you see? Hmm. I think, I mean, it's what I see is a lot of hope, you know, I'm particularly with the program I'm at. I mean, these, these professionals, emerging professionals are so passionate, so engaged, so aware. Um, It's, it's really encouraging. You know, I always tell them, I learn a lot from you too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're seeing things and having conversations and, uh, they'll often have areas of expertise that aren't mine. So I love getting, getting that insight. I think that what I hope for the future is one, we have more sex educators, I hope. <laughs> and I also hope it becomes a, a more employable field. Yeah. Because also, I, yeah, lack of jobs. Uh, don't you just feel like all school systems K through 12 should have sex educators. Just, I mean, our world would be different. Exactly. It would be so different. And I think that um, sometimes the, the concerning piece is a lot of the people who are really, really amazing aren't going into the K-12 space. They're not being a certified ed- teacher for health or whatever um, the state kind of designates as that area. But then it falls on people who really aren't there for the sex education piece. They're like, I love diabetes education or I love physical education. I don't want to be an expert in sexuality, but they're still assigned that. And the schools still allow that. And so they end up trying to answer the questions. And they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying here. And causing more harm than good. So I hope that schools see that. I hope they hire 
you know, particularly ASEC certified people to come in and do that specifically every single year with every single age group. And then we'd have plenty of work. Uh, (laughs) And, and I also think there are areas where we need to grow. I think there is also often a very strong dichotomy between faith communities and faith acceptance and sexology. Um, A lot of sexologists do tend, I feel, in our field to look down on communities of faith or say, yes, they're just creating so much harm. I'm so glad we've moved away from them. Um, And we need more people who want to integrate both. Yeah, I, I agree. So I ask every guest this last question. Are you prepared? Yes. <laughs> what story have you had to reframe for yourself lately? Mm, lately. Mm-hmm. So this is like in the, <laughs> this is the present moment. <laughs> I was going to say like distant past is much easier, right? I know. Right. But I'm uh, like, ha ha right now. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I think a story I'm working on reframing is that the spiritual component of my vocation and the academic professional piece can coexist. Mm. You know, there are some people I can definitely kind of look to who forge some of these paths, but there's not a ton. And so it's, it can be really challenging to imagine that there are going to be spaces for this and there are going to be people who get it and there are going to be those opportunities because again, it's not, it's not super common. Yeah. Um, But, you know, uh, my, my mom has always said where there's, you know, a will, there's a way, but where there's no way you make one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I think that's probably what I'm re reframing for myself or rewriting for myself is um, that there's absolutely going to be the spaces and places and conversations that want that kind of blending, that holistic um, approach to some of these really challenging questions. Well, I'll come right alongside you and encourage you. And because it is, I mean, I had a conversation just this morning with the person and we talked all about this and just the need for it and how so many more people are, are, are recognizing, like you said, the holistic nature of sex and spirituality and that one affects the other and (laughs) there needs to be healing and education in both. And so it's huge. So because you're a wonderful educator and you have this, you know, book creating cultures of consent and all of this wisdom, I know people are going to be like, I would love to hang out with this wonderful person. So how do they get a hold of you? Yeah. So um, definitely they can reach out to me through my website, drlaurenmcguire.com. Um, they can also look up some of the information through my firm, which is at equityandagency.com. And find me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Dr. Laura McGuire. I love to connect with people and hear their perspectives and feedback and stories. So yes, feel free to reach out anytime. Yay. And she has a really great Instagram as I look at it all the time. (laughs) 
Just saying. (laughs) So, well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hopefully we'll do a part two in the future because yeah, there's still lots of There's so much that we need to talk about.